You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Late one winter night after the new year, which came and went without my being aware of it for two weeks, after I had lost track of how much whiskey I had drunk, I lapsed into a blackout and awoke nearly frozen in the cemetery six hours later. I was laid out on my side, stopped up against the backs of three closely laid headstones for three sisters who had all died on December 12, 1839, at eight, seven, and five years old. I was sure that my toes and fingers had frostbite. By the wind and the barest light in the east, I could tell that it must be after five in the morning. The sky was still full of stars, but they were not the limpid, tame stars of an early summer evening. They were cold, wild, staring, and ferocious. They were stars that had arrived in Enon's sky from the deepest trenches of space, from terrible, unimaginable beginnings, their light democratized by the present moment, but in fact a vast, tangled thicket of times, of ghosted universes haunting the hillside with their artifacted light. Their light unsettled me the way the open eyes of a dead person would, because it is impossible to believe that open eyes do not see. Their light blazed in the eyes of Enon's dead for a moment in false resurrection. I rose and convulsed from the cold and wretched from the poison. I looked over at the snow-covered golf course where kids sledded every winter and imagined the dead having sledding parties at midnight on the back slope of the hill, warming their finger bones in blue fires that they kindled in granite urns, laughing when they held their hands inside the flames. I imagined them melting clumps of dirty ice in a tin bucket over the fire and drinking the hot, muddy brew and cackling with glee as it ran off the backs of their jawbones and spattered down their ribs. I imagined them using headstones for sleds. The idea made me nauseated, and I repented of it. I had the urge to go to Kate's stone and kneel in front of it and say, I'm sorry, over and over again, because no matter how much I knew better, I could not stop myself from stepping over the same dark threshold, night after night, trying to follow her into the country of the dead in order to fetch her back, even though she visited me in dreams and never left my waking thoughts. Memories of her feeding the birds and practicing running and playing cribbage were not enough. I was ravenous for my child and took to gorging myself in the boneyard, hoping that she might possibly meet me halfway or just beyond one night, if only for an instant, step back into her own bare feet onto the wet grass or fallen leaves or snowy ground of the living Enon so that we could share just one last human word. Paul Harding's first novel, Tinkers, won the Pulitzer Prize. His new novel is Enon. Thank you for joining me, Paul. Oh, thank you. It's a great pleasure. Paul, you know, this new novel seems to me like new growth from an old growth tree. It's like a, a sprig off of a sequoia, a, a beautiful new branch. Yeah, it's a, well, that's a lovely thank you. It's a lovely way of lovely way of thinking about it. Yeah. It was nice to go back to that same world and Think about the same family and the and characters from the from the the same the same fictional realm. 
I like your sense of world building in these two novels because you really do create for us a whole and separate world that's not like the world that most of us live on because it's a world where the past and the present coexist in a very deep and intense manner. Yeah, absolutely. I, 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 that's what I try to do. I feel like I'm, I don't operate in the genre of realism. Everything is sort of slightly like mythical or legendary or like fable almost. Um, very, you know, it's very pastoral. It's very, it's almost like, I think of it as almost like poetry as well. So that there's that kind of, uh, kind of intensity of detail. And I, and uh, it's true. I also sort of, I, I take linear time and sort of more or less dispense with it and just use time in kind of a experiential way, you know, the way that we experience it in our consciousness, um, where you can go here and there and now and then and all over time the way that you can in, in real life in your own imagination. That's one of the things I think that's so interesting about these novels is that your characters are truly unstuck in time in the way that all of us are. On one hand, in so many novels, the story is told sequentially right. in the way we seemingly experience life. But the way we actually experience life is while we're walking from our house to the store, we'll think about a thousand things that mm -hmm. happened before or might happen after. And you capture that amazingly well. Yeah. Oh, thanks. I, 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 I try to. You know, it's, to me, that all has its source in uh, the, you know, the, when I write fiction, I'm interested in character. I'm just not interested in plot. And plot, I think, is you get that more linear kind of time frame with you know, books that are sort of heavier on plot and on event, as it were, ec external event. And that's almost, to me, that's almost like Newtonian physics. You know, every, every effect B must have a cause A, and you can hear sort of the gears clicking and everything. And... Whereas consciousness, I think of as much more, you know, quantum, you know, the supraluminal, like you can just move all over the place. And that's absolutely true. We do. Ex I think we experience ourselves and our humanity and ourselves in the world in a much less linear fashion than we're used to reading about it in, in, all kind, in the most of the narratives we make for ourselves. Well, one of the things that interests me that despite the fact that you say you're not interested in plot, your books are just rich and dark with story. And I think you have a fantastically interesting sense of what story is and where it comes from. And you also have an interesting sense of America because you have a sense of America that has a lot, there's a lot of deep time in this book. Mm -hmm. And that's not the way most of us think of America. We think of deep time as the 1960s, not the 1760s. <laughs> right, right. And, the, and so, I mean, it, again, it just, I, I guess I have a kind of metaphysical disposition, you know? And so I like that idea that you can go not only, you know, in, in the blink of an eye or the flash of a thought. You can not only go decades or centuries, but you can go millennia and eons, and you can go out into the out into the universe instantly. And I, I think that's a very um, that's a very fulfilling effect that you can make wonderful use of in in fiction writing. Um, and it's just it's almost the, the the constant juxtaposition and moving back and forth between the poles of sort of the infinite and the infinitesimal. You know, so you can take you can you can go back to the remotest time when there you know the you know the village of Enon was covered in glaciers, or you can go back and take 
a moment from today and explode it, you know, like almost like those you know, mechanical drawings and find out what's inside that moment. So I just love the way that you can arrest time, speed it up, explode it, condense it, do all those. Th and I think that's that's of a piece with what we're talking about in terms of writing from, you know, uh, writing is rooted in consciousness, in awareness. You, your books really do seem to capture, I think, stream of consciousness more uh, precisely than most other books ever possibly could. And I'd like you to talk about uh, crafting tinkers from which this came. When you started writing in this style, did you know who George was? Did you have some external idea in your mind? George Crosby, he lives here, and then explode that outward? Yeah, it's I mean, he's George Crosby is loosely based on my own maternal grandfather who, like George in the book, uh, repaired and traded antique clocks, came from a very pover impoverished family in northern Maine whose father had epilepsy and left the family when my grandfather was 12 because his mother was going to have, have uh, her husband committed to an asylum. And he also, when my grandfather passed away, we also had a similar kind of family vigil, in, you know, around him in his living room. But it's funny. So all of the kind of like load-bearing kind of, you know, the, you know, the pillars, you know, the dramatic premises of Tinkers are actually based in fact, but they only take up, you know, like a, an index card, you know. So, and, and my grandfather came from what I've come to think of as a, a very sort of, he had a kind of generational tact, or something. He and my grandmother just really had tough lives in Maine, and they really wouldn't talk that much about them. They had this idea, you know, this this kind of attitude of what happened in the woods stays in the woods. And so that had the effect of just making those those stories, what I what they did tell me of their lives, all the more fascinating to me, you know, because those are kind of my begats. They were the family legends. They were the family myths. So when my grandfather died and I no longer had any any hope of getting documentary kind of factual, factual information from him, I just took those facts and wrote them up. And like I said, you know, it took about a page or two pages to fill them up. So I just started taking each fact and just writing it down. And then just the next sentence after the facts ended would be an imagined an imagined next sentence, and just started imagining, you know, elaborating the imagined versions of these lives and these people's minds and their experiences until the fictional versions achieved, achieved um, kind of their own momentum. They hit their own critical mass and started operating according to their own logic. And just sort of went went from there, and just sort of grew the thing out. And again, in a very nonlinear way, I didn't I didn't write the book in anything re remotely resembling the the order in which it was published. Uh, I'd like you to talk about your your prose and your sense of what a sentence is and what a paragraph is, and, and even just what a reading experience is, because these books are are what I would classify to a certain degree as a difficult reading. This is not a beach read. This isn't. <laughs> it's definitely it's it's miles from the beach, and I I don't even think this is in the the realm of the kitchen window epiphany. Right. <laughs> I, I I'd say that you're deep into human consciousness. These are deep delvings into human consciousness, and we will have sentences that last for a long time. We have 
paragraphs that last for a mm-hmm. long time. Yeah. And I think the poetry, uh, you mentioned poetry, and I think that's very close to what you're doing. Yeah, and I think of, I think of, I mean, with Tinker's especially, I just think of Tinker's as an unlineated, long lyric poem, and I just didn't know where to put the darn line breaks, so I just, you know, dispensed with them. But I, um, I, yeah, I think I'm fascinated by language, and I'm fascinated by the capacity language has for meaning. And I kind of work on the, you know, the basic unit I work with is the sentence Partly that just came out of uh, when I first started writing fiction. I I had, uh, you know, a time, I worked time and a half teaching at Harvard, and I had young children, and some days I only had time to work on a sentence, you know, for for 10 minutes. And so I really got into sort of the verb and what's the noun and the predicate and how does this sentence work and how is it balanced and what's the key and the time signature and all that kind of stuff. And I also, you know, my own favorite books for reading are ones that take up as much of my brain as possible. You know, I like the idea. So on the one hand, it's seeing how much how much a sentence can contain, how much meaning a sentence can hold and, and keep its integrity. And then also just, you know, following the principle that they say that the most complicated thing that's ever been observed in the universe is the human brain. So the human brain can take it. You know, like it. I love the idea of, you know, sating my readers' brains, just filling them up, you know, with as much, just frankly, just beautiful, precisely observed imagery and experience that I can possibly get in there. Because because since all of that is tied into consciousness, as we've been talking about, what I want my books to do is reproduce the experience of my character's consciousness itself. So there's no, it doesn't feel like there's a, a narrator in between necessarily. I want, you know, I want the the language to be so precise and so rich and so immersive that the reader loses track of the fact that he or she is reading language and just it turns into something like pure experience. You know, so that and that's kind of the aesthetic ideal anyways that I try to try to get. Uh, that's the, that's the and it, that's the reading experience when you forget that who you are and where you are you're yeah. just another person. Yeah, and I also you know I, that goes back to the days of you know as an undergraduate and my sole you know motive in life was to become a good enough reader to be able to tell people with a straight face you know I've read Absalom Absalom and I kind of have a take on it that's not just idiotic, you know, and I love that feeling of being inside of like, the, you know, Faulkner's books and just kind of feeling outmatched by them. I like that because to me that that says something about, again, just the, the, the substance of them, you know, and the idea, too, which I think people can lose track of a little bit. You know, when I teach writing, I I talk with my students about, you know, you haven't seen your favorite movie once. You haven't listened to your favorite song once, you know, you haven't, you, you know, you, whatever, you know, all these other art forms that you repeatedly, you listen to your favorite album over and over again, you watch your favorite movie over and over again. But then there's this with books as this idea of like, oh, I read that book. And I like, I like going back to this idea of how much can the book hold? I like the idea of writing a book that people can return to and it will reward repeated readings and yield things that you didn't notice on a first reading or a second reading or a third reading. Um, and I think it's sort of um, 
you know, <laughs> the 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 reverse of that is that I'm horrified at the idea of somebody being able to, being able to read my book once and sort of say, "Oh, I got it, I get it." You know, I, I, I you know my own favorite books, I read them and they they haunt me until I have to go back and look at them again. You know, and so I like that just that idea of making artifacts that are worth people returning to th throughout their lives and taking taking a, you know subsequent looks at. And also, as well, I think. When you write in that manner where things where there's a certain percentage of what the reader is experiencing the language that's just beyond their ken, that that creates a kind of a, a tension mm -hmm. that I think um, is the equivalent of what's going to happen next in right. terms of plot and that yeah. pulls yeah, the reader along. There is. There's like a dramatic tension in consciousness and wondering, so what's the next sentence going to be? Because I take all those ideals and those principles, but then the way that I sort of actually apply them in the process of my own writing is that I write, I think of my writing as interrogative, or I think of it, since I was a drummer in a former life, I think of it in terms of um, sort of like high, the highest possible level of like jazz improvisation, which is like John Coltrane or Elvin Jones, or, you know, you work on your technical chops, you get all the scales down and all the, you know, the, you know, your, your chops and all your paradiddles and stuff like that, if you're a drummer. Um, and so then as you're interrogating or you're investigating, you're improvising your way through these characters' lives, sentence by sentence, you're ready for whatever comes over the wire and you can articulate it in, with that kind of precision, you know. I'd like you to talk a little bit about your experience in, in Cold Water Flat <laughs> <laughs> and how that informed your writing experience in terms of just uh, pursuing uh, uh, an art form. Yeah, you know, it's funny. I think all the differences between being a drummer in a rock band and being a writer are, you know, are actually finally superficial. You know, I mean, one is loud and you do it immediate for a live audience and, you know, it's at a million decibels and all that sort of stuff. And it's kind of a pop form. And the other you do is, you know, by yourself in solitude and quiet. But they ultimately sort of scratch the same itch. You know, I, 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 I have a very kind of, idealistic and almost passive experience of creating either art or, or prose in that um, I think of myself as I'm just the amanuensis, you know, the, the, the kind of, I feel like the, the, the signal, of, you know, the artistic signal kind of comes, comes over the wire from the cosmos and I'm just there to take it down. And so it, there's this kind of beautiful paradoxical, you know, experience of sort of in some ways, it's merely circumstantial, whether I'm sitting in a drum set with a pair of drumsticks or whether I'm sitting at my laptop, because the, the signal's the same. And if, it, if I'm sitting at the drums, it gets translated into rhythm. It gets, you know, it gets translated, you know, in, into music and into, you know, the drum patterns and all that. And if I'm sitting at the laptop, it precipitates into the world. It, you know, it comes into the world through the atmosphere of language, as it were, and kind of, you know, precipitates into prose. So it's weird. It feels like it's all coming from the same place, and one is just language, and the other is rhythm. In the case of being a drummer, now Tinker's is a a very immersive look at the the final days of of George Crosby, mm -hmm. and, and it's it's stream of consciousness. Uh, Enon is, I think, uh, branches out into the world. I think that having created the world of Enon, which lives 
much in the background of Tinker's. Mm -hmm. You take us out into that world through the agency of Charlie Crosby. Right, right. And and the the tragedy that befalls him in the first paragraph. <laughs> yeah, of the yeah. No, book. No, no, There's no no time wasting there. Right, right. Yeah, it, yeah. Partly, well, the I mean, the that first paragraph in the book just comes out of my um, just having this almost um, sort of fetishistic kind of um, obsession with laying all my cards right on the table. No, no place to hide, nothing up my sleeve, you know, nothing behind my back. Here it is. Here are the facts. And, and um, what that does, the way that helps me is it helps me to discipline um, the writing of the book. The, the, the story is going to be in the telling because I'm not withholding anything for, you know, as Thomas Mann would call it, mere effect. <laughs> Later, it's, you know, here it is right there. And so now I have to really rely on my storytelling chops to keep that tension and all the, you know, and to keep the, to keep the readers, to keep the reader engrossed and immersed in it. Um, and in this case, yeah, he's, he, Charlie is, He's kind of an amateur local historian, and so the the town he he ranges about the town all day and night all in all weather all this sort of stuff, and the town almost becomes it's almost like a mind itself in a way like he is like a thought that the landscape is having, and so it it, it becomes that landscape is then also refracted through his his perception of it. And since he has, you know, the dramatic premise of Enon is that Charlie has lost his only daughter. And so that is the overwhelming sort of tragic fact that is, that is, has kind of overtaken his brain, but that intermingles with his perceptions of being out about in the town at night, you know, walking through the meadows and ending up in the cemetery and being near the lake and all that. So that landscape becomes almost like, again, like the media, that shapes his thinking about his daughter as well. It, it, as you referred to yourself laying your cards on the table, it's like you cut off your feet before you begin the race. <laughs> I make it hard for myself, <laughs> right? No, I, I like that because, again, in, you know, my, uh, my, it, in my experiences as a reader, you know, I appreciate books that are just open like that. And I think that that's just a great – I think, you know, Faulkner, again, is a great role model for that. And again, I've got Absalom, Absalom on the brain today. But that book, basically, you know the entire story of Thomas Sutpen within the first four or five pages of the book. And then the rest of the book are increasingly elaborated versions of that story so that you're, you already know the whole story and yet there's more to it. And now you think you know everything and yet there's more to it. And it's this beautiful kind of loop, feedback loop or something that then... Be, ends up embodying what the whole book is about, which is memory, you know, and time and the generations and, you know, the, all this, the, the son of the South and everything. And so I just, I just, I, I love that idea. Of, it, it also, if the reader knows what's going to happen, there's a real, very powerful type of dramatic tension to that, which I think is a little bit counterintuitive when you first, but if you know what's going to happen, like in Tinker's, you know that George Washington Crosby is going to die in eight days. That's the first sentence of the book. Hopefully what happens is that you become more and more implicated in his humanity. You start feeling the tension of, I don't want to lose this person. This person means something to me. And yet I know in 15 pages and five pages, you know, he's going to die. And so there's that, there's that idea, you know, that, that's, that's a, a type of dramatic tension that's um, very powerful. One of the things that your books are really good at are, 
are almost nature guides. <laughs> right, right, yeah. And, and, and I'd like you to talk about developing the prose for that nature guide and how, and any research that you do to make sure that that stuff rings true and then how you bring that research back into the prose where it just reads like poetry, this mm -hmm. gorgeous experience. Yeah, I mean, I certainly wouldn't consider myself a nature writer. You know, I actually don't know tons about nature. I'm not a naturalist or anything, but I... I, you know, all of these landscapes are just the land. I mean, Enon is the colonial name for the town I grew up in on the North Shore of Boston. And so I've spent and misspent, <laughs> you know, a large part of my life knocking around those woods and those landscapes. Um, I know the cemetery that's in Enon. I know the place where Charlie and his daughter Kate go. And you can, um, there's an Audubon sanctuary near my house where you can go and put bird seed in your hand and the birds will come and eat out of your hand. Uh, so it just comes from being very, very familiar with those landscapes, so with the flora and the fauna and the light and the seasons. And um, so it's not so much that I ever had to do any deliberate research. It's just when I when it came time to set my books in that, I mean, part of the motivation for setting the books in that landscape was because I have it right at my fingertips and I don't have to do any research. Um, because, again, I'm so preoccupied with getting, say, Charlie's experience of losing his daughter, just moment by moment what he's actually feeling, that I didn't want to have to figure, oh, what, when would the chicory be blooming? You know, I, I know all of that. And so then, um, and, and, you know, the natural world is beautiful, and describing that precisely is basically reproduces the experience of, again, being immersed in that landscape. And then again, I never write about landscape per se or nature per se. It's always the the human being who's in the middle of that landscape is is always the nucleus or the center of the the the, the true subject. It, and that's true, and that's an interesting observation that your novels are not, and your sentences even are not about the specific plants you mention or how they look. It's how those things strike us when we when we are in their presence. Yeah, absolutely. And again, it's, so it's experiential. And so it, since Enon, for example, is written in first person to the extent that Charlie takes the time to describe to the reader what he knows about the natural world and about the town that that um, in which he lives and which in a way sort of takes care of him, you know, that's him sort of confessing who he is. And, and, and that's him, you know, he's taking the time to do all these things for the reader in a way almost as like the reader becomes almost a surrogate for his daughter because he, these are the things that he took the time to notice and to describe beautifully and point the beauty of out to his his daughter as being as part of his love for her as being solicitous for her so it's again it's just all character it's just all about it's all a, it's it's just all about um you know the 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 human subject and these two, you do a great job of drawing history out of character and making us aware of how close stuff that we read about in history books is to our own family line and our own family lives. And I'm thinking about Howard and, and George, you know, Howard back in in the what the mid 1800s or something I'm... yeah or it would have been the early 20s but then when it tinkers goes back to his dad you know yeah. then you're back in the 19th century and he, when i was writing it's funny because like his his father howard's father doesn't even have a name 
And it's just true. I hit, you know, you, you, you know, like maybe, you know, your great grandfather's name, but you probably don't know your great great unless you're a genial, you know, you do genealogy and stuff. And so there's that again, the sort of the, the, the kind of regress of time and generations is is interesting. And you can do it. You can do it both ways, too. You can imagine, you know, who, you know, who will think of me as being their ancestor, you know, and that's just another way to kind of break down time. And there's also I mean, because my kind of informal kind of operating definition of literary fiction, which is the you know the realm that we're talking, is you know bo books that are inspired in large part by reading of other books. And so I'm always struck by the fact that um, when I read, say, Saint Augustine, or when I read Milton, time just collapses. I mean, I may as well be sitting in the room with John Milton when I'm reading Paradise Lost. So there's that other, you know, the idea of like simultaneity, you know, you may as well be in the room with whatever author you're reading. And so that there's that aspect of it. And then with the familial stuff, I was just I've just always been fascinated by the fact that, for example, when I you, my grandmother passed away. But, you know, when I, I just would always have the sense of I'd talk with her about her family and she would be able to tell me about when she was young and she um, would hear stories from her grandfather who was a nurse in the Union Army and apparently knew Walt Whitman or so the family story went. So it's fascinating for me, to, the, the idea that I'm sitting in a room with somebody who sat in a room who was in a room, you know, was with somebody in the Civil War and that's that beautiful, just like time just collapses and suddenly, you know, you can touch the person who touched the person who was with Walt Whitman kind of thing. So. It's just I just again I'm kind of a metaphysician by 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 disposition, so I just love that stuff is just endlessly fascinating to me. This book, your new book, Enon, it, it explores uh, grief, and, and I think you do a, a a lovely job of that. And I'd like you to talk about uh, creating the kind of descent that Charlie undergoes in a manner that is lyrical and beautiful, um, but I don't think of it as necessarily harrowing to the reader. For readers, it, it's, there's a, it's a bit disturbing, but it's mostly just um, we're filled with the depth of emotion that humans can have. That's good to hear. I, you know, I, that's what I hope. You know, I, I'd, I'd hate to think that people... I don't like it when, you know, authors abuse me, <laughs> you know, and so I don't, you know, it's a very sad subject. It's a tragic subject. In fact, it's so tragic that, you know, when I first started writing the book, I thought, geez, maybe I better not do this. But then I thought, well, then that's the best reason to keep trying to do it. It seems too difficult to write. So what better reason than, to, you know, to try to, to try to write it. But that's what I, one of the ways that I think that I approached writing, writing about such a, such a sad subject was, Again, it was character first. So at no point there's not a sentence in the book that doesn't have as its subject Charlie. And that and so like I did I never wrote about grief. The book is not about grief. It's about Charlie who has had this thing happen to him. So again, I was able to um, prevent the book from ever taking a turn for the generic or the theoretical or the abstract, you know the five stages of grief. So chapter one, denial, you know, check. And then you just make him conform to some kind of clinical um, stereotype about about grief. Um, I just I just basically turned into this guy and just 
sat with him moment by moment by moment. And just the drama then became the drama of trying to grapple with this with this grief and trying to, you know, time persists. It keeps going on. What am I going to do with myself? How am I going to how am I going to get myself out from the undertow? How am I going to find my feet, get my feet back under me with this? And um, so it's a, it's it's you know, it's a story about this guy, but it's a, it's a story about his love for his daughter. Um, I mean, for it just. You know, un, it's unabashedly meant to be beautiful and harrowing and hopeful. You know, it's an affirmative book, but it's it's hard won, costly hope. It's 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 hope. It's hope. It's earned hope. Earned hope, right? And and, and aesthetically, that's interesting to me too. Which is just the darker and the the, the heavier the threat of hopelessness, um, the more kind of piercing and beautiful. You know, the, the darker things are, the more piercing and beautiful, the little grain of light that, that still means you're basically saying yes, you know, and, 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 and you still, you know, there's even a line in Enon somewhere where, you know, a, like a grain of hope contradicts a continent of despair or something like that. And I was really working with that, you know, just the idea of the single voice talking to you, talking directly to the reader, a soliloquy, a monologue, one voice confessing to the reader all of the struggles um, all, all of the struggles to try to be equal to his daughter's memory. This is book two is about the the ever the presence of absence. Absolutely, yeah. And I've you know I've read a lot about that. And William James kind of has some writings about that. Um, the idea that there is no such thing. There's no such thing as like as absence in the abstract. Every absence is as specific describes as specifically the thing that's absent. You know, so it, it, it it's almost like a casting in a mold or something like his daughter's absence is so articulated, it almost invokes her. And that's what he actually spends a lot of the book doing is invoking her mm-hmm. and trying to and trying to elaborate his memory of her. And then it gets a little, it starts to get a little bit phantasmagoric because part of the way along with, thinking about her and remembering her and imagining versions of her in which he tries to preserve his her memory um he also sort of naturally um tries to numb himself to to the grief and so he you know sort of very plausibly takes to drinking too much and at one point breaks his hand in a moment of anger and gets a prescription to painkillers and he begins to abuse those so those those kind of the physiological effects of the drugs start to corrode his Along with the grief, they sort of he, he they they corrode his consciousness, and I wanted him to be acutely and constantly aware of that fact. I want him to be a very self-aware guy, and so because then that became a large part of the book itself is him saying, "I know I shouldn't be doing this. I'm ashamed of myself. What my what my daughter think? You know, how to bear witness to my you know to my daughter's memory by just falling apart at the seams, and yet." Here I still am drinking a bottle of whiskey. Here I still am crushing up pills and snorting them. Here I am breaking into my neighbors' houses to steal their painkillers. 
and I know better. You know, that goes back to sort of St. Paul's letter to the Romans. You know, the e- I do the evil which I don't want to do, and the good I want to do I don't. You know, there's a very, very, to me, a universal human predicament that we all experience every day on, you know, from the most trivial to the most profound levels. I shouldn't smoke the cigarette. I shouldn't, I shouldn't eat the piece of chocolate cake. I shouldn't have, um, you know, not... I shouldn't have walked by my neighbor who's fallen by the wayside. You know, it goes from the most trivial to the most deeply moral um, experiences in our lives. I, and it's interesting, too, that in in the novel, uh, Charlie experiences, he externalizes for himself his own inner chaos externally as his house falls apart, his life falls apart. Yeah. I think that you do a great job of doing all these kind of externalizations in a manner that seems naturalistic and feels uh, organic to the reader rather than a literary uh, exercise. Yeah, you want to make it this, an organic whole. And I do, I mean, I, I I sort of think of it as all contiguous because even the outside is experienced on the inside. So you can sort of, I mean, I, I ended up thinking of Enon almost... As a consciousness itself, the, the the town itself is like a mind, mm-hmm. and Charlie in it, it is a thought almost, and the seasons are moods and atmospheres, and so I just sort of perforate the boundaries between, in the case of Enon, the inner and outer worlds, they just become contiguous with it, and then, um, but then also what I what I do anyways, and so I just gave to Charlie is I perforate the boundaries between life and death. And I allow him to go into this kind of in, in his imagination. He he's like Orpheus, or he's like you know um, Demeter and Persephone. He's he's the the grieving um, you know he's the bereaved parent who goes down into the underworld to try to bring his daughter back. Um, and I, in that sense, um, you know the kind of the guardian angel of Enon, or one of the, one of the many guardian angels of Enon, was Emily Dickinson because she has all those wonderful first person posthumous poems. <laughs> she starts off, I had no sooner died than I began to contemplate, you know, beauty and truth. And, uh, and so I, 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 I gave that, all of that to Charlie to let him, let him do that. And then again, it sort of intersects with the fact that at the end of the day, he still is an imminent living, you know, human person who is actually coming physically closer and closer to death by the, you know, the way that he's, he's treating himself or m- mistreating himself. I, I love the way that you work the kind of mythic references into this because it, it seems uh, his thoughts run naturally. You do a great job of shaping his thoughts in language to run naturally through those kind of channels of Greek myth. And, and I think that we there's a great uh, piece where he imagines uh, Kate coming out in an ocean, crossing in an ocean liner, and it's a very river sticks-ish. Yeah, oh, absolutely. But it, yeah. it's... It's done in a manner that we, because you're so good at convincing us we're in Charlie's mind, we experience that kind of universal myth in a very personal and specific manner. Yeah, I try to do that. And it's just, I, you know, he's a bit of a kind of an autodidact, you know. And so he, he at least before tragedy strikes, he kind of was a reader and sort of. So I just just imagined him having all of these stories sort of at his disposal 
to use personally. So they be, they're sort of universal, but their universality lies in their applicability to the personal. Um, and so, yeah, I gave him... I gave him Homer. He imagines being kind of in a Homeric narrative at one point, and he imagines there's all sorts of, I mean, there's plenty of the, uh, when he runs into, uh, he breaks into the house of a woman named Mrs. Hale. I mean, basically all of her dialogue is straight out of like Deuteronomy and Leviticus. She talks to him in this, frankly, kind of mosaic kind of language. And so I I gave, because what I found is that him using all that myth, um, what I found, what I recognized him doing, I mean, what I recognized that he had been doing um, long after I'd had him doing it for a while, for, for a, a fairly long time, is um, he's basically, in some ways, improvising a kind of pagan religion based on the worship of his daughter, in some ways. Not... That that sounds maybe a little bit overdetermined. It's not quite like that because he's not conscious of it that way. But he goes through rituals. There's one point where he's sort of t- scooping coffee out of a can, and he thinks of her ashes in the urn, and thinks of like what of su- what what religion is it where you you drink a tea brewed from your from your dead ancestors' ashes, and that would somehow imbibe you with their spirit, and you know just this just these sorts of little rituals. He thinks. He comes to think of all the different versions he imagines of Kate, you know, uh, say, being friends with the old witch Sarah Good, who was, you know, um, hanged in 1692. He starts to think of those as little fetishes, little idols. Um, And he starts to worry, you know, (laughs) Mrs. Hale says to him, you're burning strange fires and making dismal days, you know. And it is this kind of weird, I mean, he's sort of, he's back in, you know, in the time of Moloch or something like that. And it's just, it, it just na- I, I think, too, naturally, that sort of like underworld stories lend themselves. that they, they just naturally have that kind of mythic tone if everything is kind of taking place at night and everything is kind of taking place in, in the graveyard and every, you're thinking about what's inside the hill, you know, and the, and the furnaces, you know, the, the kind of, you know... Um, you know the kind of the Vulcan furnaces way down in the hill, and it just it just lends itself to that kind of mythos or whatever. There's a a lot of visionary writing in this novel, uh, and when you're talking about the furnaces, there's one piece in particular that reminds me of something that you might almost find in a Clive Barker novel, <laughs> and I think it's really beautifully written. I'd like you to talk about approaching these when you start head down into that passage. I mean. Is this something that you think about and sketch out, or does it come out of the language, or does it come out of your mind? Yeah, it totally comes out of the imagination, and it totally comes out of the language. It's written in the same way. So, the passage to which you're referring, it's you know, I just the first sentence was something like you know, the obsidian girl moves through the trees at night, and I just thought of, you know, I just thought of a version of Kate at night. He's he's in this Charlie's in the cemetery so much, and I just thought of some version where. It almost looks like she's made of glass, so you wouldn't so much see her as you just see kind of everything behind her through kind of like a warped lens. And so then I just said, well, then she walks through the golf course. Where did she come from? Well, she just came up from a trap door. Where does the trap door lead? Well, he's down into the heart of the hill. What's in the heart of the hill? Well, the furnace, you know, and who's, you know, and who's tending the furnace? Well, these guys with shovels and they're shoveling coal in it. And, you know, and I just, and you just sort of just let it almost on, like, it's almost like a crystal on, you know, it's, 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 it's like a crystal elaborating itself chemically. And um, 
And when it works, what you end up, you just end up with something that's sufficient unto itself because there's no symbolism in any, I mean, I think there naturally is symbolism in it, but there's nothing deliberate or willful in the, you know, on my part. I just like, I just take it and let it, take the take the initial image and just let it elaborate itself and exhaust itself which is a version of just working with um extended metaphors um which is something that i just learned from um writers like herman melville you know moby dick what he does is he takes the whaling ship and he cuts it down the midsection basically gives you a cutaway view of the ship and then he just kind of goes chore by chore deck by deck through the whole thing and with his beautiful, amazing, biblical, poetic prose, Shakespearean prose, just t- just builds metaphors, these amazing cosmological, metaphysical metaphors in, in which you wholly believe while he's elaborating them. You know, so here's the Cooper making his barrels. And mustn't it have been like making a barrel when God, you know, hooped and staved the universe? And you're just like, yeah, it must have been. That's so beautiful. You're right. And then what he does is just when he gets to the end of it and can't, it can't go any further, he says, stop your daydreaming. You're going to fall out of the crow's nest. Right. And so there's this beautiful kind of lovely, essential human activity of trying to make metaphors that will explain things, that will sort of comfort you and make sense of the world. And the fact that you know that every human metaphor will fail doesn't ever stop you from starting the next one when it occurs to you. And so I just gave that to Charlie. That's basically what he's doing with the memory of his daughter. And every one of those metaphors is dark and beautiful, I hope, you know, while he's making it and it reproduces his imagination and his consciousness. And yet everyone is bound to fail. And yet he still tries to make another one when the the present one fails because it's almost an act of devotion to his daughter. So again, that's almost ritualistic. There's something almost religious about it. You know, um, there's a kind of, I think, uh, religious feel to both these books. Mm -hmm. Um, They they seem like uh, chapters of a peculiarly personal, uh, you know, Third Testament. I think of it that way. I mean, part you know, I grew up without religion, no religion, a- a- atheist by default. Though I'm not, was not doctrinaire, was not hostile towards religion. I just wasn't exposed to it. And um, over the years, I've become very good friends with one of my teachers, Marilyn Robinson, who is, you know, she's she's deeply religious. And just as my my very mundane motive for starting to read theology was just to be able to have a good conversation with her. Um, and then I just found that it just it just um, it just occupied me. It just it just it, it just laid claim to me. Um, it, it, I became implicated in it in a way that I find the best theology and the you know biblical narrative and all that to be very 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 aesthetically and philosophically sophisticated cosmology. And you know it's metaphysics to me, and so it's very to me that's just it's just very beautiful contemplating. The theology that contemplates those beautiful narratives and the beautiful narratives themselves, and I love um, William Tyndall's, you know, translation of the Bible is actually the, the, the literary is the invention of literary English. So all of these things, and I, and I and so I I I allow my I allow I just everything I read I let into my books, and so I fiddle around with religious ideas inside the books. Um, at one point in Tinker's, one of the characters 
kind of almost goes looking for relics uh, as uh, when he's looking for his father who's disappeared uh, mental illness um and he thinks of himself as looking for the deep and secret yes of the world which is luther that's just martin luther talking about how sometimes christ's parables are weird and they sound kind of off-putting and he says well no the whole thing is that you're like it's almost a moral imperative to try to search for the deep and secret yes of this world and that's what i kind of think of charlie's entire project in enon is trying to find a reason why i shouldn't just desist you know what reason is there to keep going and um and you know it's so again enon is affirmative and there is that kind of spiritual quality theological quality to it and but it's finally hopeful and it's finally it's finally affirmative, no matter how modest and costly and hard one that that affirmation is. And so that's absolutely of a of a piece with what, you know, theology concerns itself. And I think, too, on the flip side of this is science. And I think that absolutely. And I think absolutely. that you you find the continuum between the two and your language and the way your character. Yeah, they're the just world. science and religion are just placed in such a false opposition in our popular culture. There's just they're not antithetical to one another. And I find that they actually they harmonize with one another in a beautiful way because no good theology is I mean, people people fail to make the distinction between, say, um, you know, like Protestant Christianity or whatever, or even evangelical Christianity and fundamentalism, you know, because fundamentalism is patently sort of doesn't make any sense. But no good theology contradicts science, you know, and I don't I think, and, you know, if you especially I mean, I love to read the philosophy of physics, you know, and quantum theory is is just astonishing. And there's certain points where you're reading physics and you think this is reading like theology is reading, you know, because it's all kind of cosmology cause theology is almost like narrative cosmology and physics is kind of more empirical cosmology or something. But, you know, for instance, they say that something like 96% of the universe that they know is there is not available for us to be able to observe. We just do not have access to it. So then you start thinking about like terms like metaphysics. There's nothing meta about speculating about what that other 96% of physics is, you know? So it's not weird kind of like, oh, the spirit world, you know? It's sort of like, no, it's like we, we're almost like hypo-physical, you know? We only experience the narrowest bandwidth of this universe. And to speculate and imagine your way into the, the the realm of that other 96% of existence is, is I can't think of anything I'd rather do, you know? Uh, and so I even, uh, in, in Enon, I even let Charlie think about that. There's, a, there's a, a scene in the book where he imagines his daughter as being like a particle in a particle accelerator. And, the, and when, the, when, the, when, when the, she's struck and killed by a car, and instead of her dying when she's struck by the car, he imagines three of her coming out of it, you know, because matter is created in those in those collisions. So that's another metaphor that he can use. It's, you know, it's 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 all fair game, you know. And, and when you talked about your fiction as interrogatory, I think that that's exactly what you can do with language. Yeah. Is use language and character and literature to interrogate the world and interrogate the 
means by which we know the world, science, religion, politics, culture. Yeah. And that's the beautiful thing is, you know, an art, you know, and <laughs> what you get to do with art, being an artist, I can take everything. Nothing is irrelevant. And so I can just put it all in there and it and it all yields its own particularly beautiful results. Um and since I'm again, since I'm a I'm a I'm a novelist, I don't have to um, offer any answers. I think it would be actually fraudulent to offer answers if you if you sort of take your reader by the hand and lead your reader into you know so that you're both sort of standing face to face in front of the great mysteries of hu- meaning and human existence. It would be um, it would be uh, abusive and fraudulent to then prescribe what your reader is supposed to think about it all. It's uh, to me description is sufficient you know just just describe these profound states of mind and the reader will recognize herself in them i mean that's my my favorite um experience as a reader are those moments where you get done with a book or a chapter or a passage or even a line and you just your breath is sort of taken away and you just sit you just think all at once i know what i just read is absolutely true i've always known that it's true but i've never seen anybody put it into words you know and so I think art, yeah, is art investigates the universe and our place in it aesthetically. That's exactly right. And in the way that, you know, science and does it empirically and all the other realms. But it is. It's as legitimate and profound a means of investigation into the human experience as any other we have. And uh, it's a means of revising reality in that we can sit there reading a book and having this reading experience and looking at the the page and look up from the sentence and the world we left behind us before we started that page is now completely different. Yeah, yeah, and it's all a matter of perception. Yeah, it's the way that the perception gets altered and the way you, um, you know, if you habitually read good books, you habitually notice the world in a different way. You know, I mean, just then being a non-reader, if you write every day, you notice the world in a different way. And it's just, yeah, it's a beautiful, way, it's a beautiful way to go about your humanity. And there, there's that, you know, I mean, I'm often asked at readings about sort of one of the first questions is how much of these books is true? And that sort of it, it's a it's a it's a reasonable question. And it's interesting how it sort of breaks open this kind of fascinating subject of, you know, because I, I sort of answer somewhat flippily at first, you know, everything is true. Every, That's what would be my guess. Every sentence is true, but it's but truth is not, you shouldn't conflate truth with fact. You know, there's imaginative truth, and imaginative truth takes up most of our lives. You know, I think we, we, we live according to imaginative truth in in the same way that actually going, you know, Going back to, you know, talking about, say, like the Bible, you know, it's as absurd to say the Bible isn't true because they can't find Noah's Ark as it is to say Moby Dick isn't true because they can't find the Pequod. You know, you know what I mean? I mean, you know, neither is dependent on like these real world artifacts existing um, for them to be true. You know, they're, they are truths of the spirit, which for all intents and purposes, in my book anyways, spirit, spirituality, whatever is a synonym for the imagination, you know? One of the things about Enon, I think, especially in relation to Tinker's, is that it partake, Tinker's partakes of the times in which George lived and with the way he sees the world. And I think Enon does a wonderful job of subtly altering 
the way the world is seen mm-hmm. by virtue of the world way Charlie sees Charlie, the world. Right, right. Yeah, and that made for um that made for some interesting minor characters. There's some, you know, I the other thing about Enon too is I think, and maybe this is my sort of like my, my dry New England down east sense of humor, but I think of a, there's a lot of humor in Enon, you know, and um, Ricky. And, yeah, yeah, right, right, exactly, and and the um and the uh, Gus, the guy he paints with, you know. <laughs> Kind of obscenity spouting house painter that he works with, and yeah, so Charlie would just have these different these different experiences because he's had different you know he's kind of a he's kind of a jack of all he sort of paints houses and you know does landscaping and most people's lawns and stuff like that. So there is a but but at the same time, what was pleasant about that is he's still his grandfather's grandson. You know, there's still the Crosby DNA in him. So and he sort of idealizes his grandfather. I mean, his grandfather George is actually in Enon in what what I what turned out to be kind of a very central scene in the book, um, and it was actually the last scene I wrote for the whole book, and it actually sort of brought the book together in certain ways that I hadn't anticipated. But um, so he he tries to see the world when he's trying to be at his best. I think he tries to see the world the way he thinks his grandfather would have seen it. He, 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 his grandfather is his sort of role model. And yet again, he's distinct from him. So there's this beautiful kind of simultaneous, um, you know, and this is just another thing that I'm interested in too, the, 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 the fact that we are simultaneously our own selves. We're just individuals as unique as our fingerprints, as it were. Um, And yet at the same time, we also participate in familial identity as well. You know, you sort of, you're just like your grandfather. You're just like your great aunt Sally. You're just, and so it's just this: you're you're an individual, but you're also a member of the of a family. You know that again extends to the whole family of humankind, I guess. But um, yeah, writing Tinkers was interesting too because people sometimes ask me, "How did you get that kind of old fashioned, like slightly archaic quality to the language?" And I told them, "I just um, I didn't use contractions, and I uh, I just wrote grammatically correct English sentences." <laughs> For all intents of, you know, that sounds archaic these days, you know, the way that a lot of people write. So it's sort of an interesting experience. And Charlie, unlike in Tinkers, you know, it's a, Enon is a first person narrative. So Charlie speaks kind of in a, a, a in a more colloquial way. Um, he can he can sort of rise to the occasion and rises to lyricism when he's sort of, you know, doing his lamentations. And I, I did. I mean, you were talking about the the books almost feeling like, you know, b- apocryphal Bible, you know, books. And I think of Enon as being like Job. I think of him as being like, uh, you know, the book of Lamentations. I think of Enon as, because it's so, it's just one voice talking to you directly, that it is, um, it's a prayer, it's a psalm, it's a hymn. He's trying to, you know, or it's like Augustine, you know, his confessions. It's it's him bearing his soul. So there is some very colloquial sort of, you know, down and dirty, you know, kind of, you know, working on the painting crew kind of stuff. But at the same time, there's that there's that poetry that he rises to. It's almost incantatory. It's almost like hymnal, you know. One of the things, too, I like in the relationship between the books is we see some of the same scenes from different perspective. Yeah. And yeah. I, I absolutely love that parallax view. 
I love that too. And you know, that's you know, I you know, you you, you get that with your Wheaties and your James Joyce as an <laughs> undergraduate, and so that's that's absolutely. And the um, the what was this? The, those books that everybody used to read for that too. Uh, the Joyce Carey books mm-hmm. called her self surprised and to be. Anyways, that that same thing, which is you have a set of events and you just narrate them from different points of view, and you just you you it's sort of a way of modeling things. It's almost like. Uh, a hologram or something you get to you get to do these sort of three or even four dimensional modelings of scenes if you get them from different angles it's i almost think of it you know the like first person second person third person present tense past tense whatever almost in in the way that like a cinematographer would which is just you get your close shot your medium shot your far shot um when you're when you're you know when you know character a is looking at is recalling an event, um, he will he will narrate it from a depth of field that is different from another character, and so you get, you know, different parts of it come in and out, go in and out of focus according to the different points of view, and it's just a, it's a pleasing way for the you know the the reader to to experience these experiences. Now, what will there be a, a third book of, of this particular testament? I think there will. I I I the. Th- <laughs> The death, the the sort of cul-de-sac that I ended up with in Enon is, you know, from the very beginning, I knew that Enon, again, was going to be that single voice. One, per, It's a story of one person sort of in the universe. And so, but then the problem is I killed off the whole thing. <laughs> like he's an, another subject that be, or theme that came up that was very interesting to write about and consider um, is that Charlie is the last member of his family. When he dies, that family will be gone from the face of the planet. And he even even like the last sentence of the book sort of anticipates that. Just the idea of like nobody, you know, will just nobody who will ever remember that there was this family on the earth and that kind of obscurity sort of fascinates me. Um, but so if I if I go back to Enon or if I go back to the Crosby's, I have to make a, a backwards move. Um or if I look at somebody else, and I might look at another family in Enon or something like that. But yeah, I really I love that, and that 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 goes back to Faulkner. I love, you know, reading a novel in Faulkner and seeing, you know, um, one of the protagonists of another of his novels sort of walk by in the background. It suddenly it seems it makes each book seem bigger than just itself. You know, that whole fictional world. It feels like it's it feels like another universe that you get to you get to live in. In in the science fiction world, they call it world building. And world I, building. Well, they know that's not, that's that's exactly what it is. I think that's and and it's cool because I never. It's so funny how you you sort of censor yourself or you limit yourself because I I had always just thought oh you can't I can't really do that because I don't write science fiction or fantasy and then I just sort of realized of course I can do that I can do anything I want it's art you know like if it works it it works you know. I've been speaking with Paul Harding. His new novel is Enon. Thank you for joining me, Paul. Oh, you're most welcome. Great conversation. My pleasure. Thank you. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.